0: Hey, Darren, I'm watching the best show on television. You want to know what it is? What is it? I think I know, but what is it? (laughs) Inglorious Trexperts. And you're thinking to yourself, wait a second, that's not a TV show. But it is. But it is. It It is. is. It's a TV show because you can watch us on the Electric Now app. It's an app for streaming video podcasts as well as movies, television, and more. You can see us on demand on Electric Now. I demand it. I demand because I demand it. <laughs> Commodore Stone can watch us on the Electric Now app. And how do you get the Electric Now app? Because apparently people are having trouble understanding the concept. Just go to your app store from whatever device you're using or all of the devices you're using. And you download it to your phone, your iPad, your Roku, your whatever. Whatever you, whatever you, whatever you have that streams other than a Viewmaster. You download it and, and then you watch it 100% free. There's no charge. There's no Patreon. There's no Electronic Frontier. All there is is a free app. So download the Electric Now app from your favorite app store and watch us on Electric Now. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And if you're a fan of the only gentleman secret agent with a license to kill and thrill, you should pick up my new James Bond oral history. Nobody does it better. Available now in hardcover audio. And digital wherever books are sold. Do you expect me to read? No, I expect you to buy it. Need to make a call? Look for a police call box. That's where you'll find Two on Who, the new Doctor Who podcast from Electric Surge. Two on Who is available wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: welcome back to Best Movies Never Made, the podcast where we explore interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. I am your host, Josh Miller, and with me as always is Mr. Steven Scarlatta. How
2: are you doing today, Josh?
1: I am doing pretty good. How about yourself?
2: Can't complain.
1: We are just going to pick up right where we <laughs> left off in part two of our discussion of unmade versions of Stephen King's It. And joining us again are the co-hosts of the KingCast podcast, a podcast dedicated to uh, Stephen King. Um, did, would you guys say, well, so we got Scott Wampler and Eric Vespé, sorry to Hello. <laughs> bury Hi. your actual names there. I was gonna say, uh, what is your like quick pitch on the podcast? Like do you, in your mind, do you have a real set thing that it is beyond just talking about Stephen King? It's good. Yeah, it's. Good. it's <laughs> um. I'll <laughs> take
3: this one. It's uh. It. It's halfway in between uh, a book club and sort of a, a movie rewatch show. Um, but uh, rather than having our guests come on to talk about, you know, the the adaptation there between that book and movie, um, and and assigning them uh, a title, you know, so and so, come on and talk about Salem's Lot, that sort of thing. Uh, we let our guests choose whichever, uh, whichever adaptation they want to talk about. So we're talking about the book or short story and the resulting TV show or uh, movie with someone who tends to have a very specific outlook on on those titles, which um, means we can repeat titles because everyone's coming at it from a different perspective. And it means, um, you know, we're getting to hear some, some sometimes uh, shockingly personal stories from people <laughs> whose lives were uh, influenced by Stephen King awesome
2: it's a great show too highly well, recommend thank you. you checking out
1: yeah, yeah. before we uh, uh hit record we were talking about the langoliers uh and i liked that episode <laughs> yeah. a lot and i was very jealous of noah segan and his story of is it his father-in-law just like sends them vintage hardbacks oh, first editions yeah you should see editions. the
3: pictures he has it's disgusting it's this mother- i'm gonna <laughs> rob his house at some point <laughs> yeah. you're on notice, Rage- noah.
4: Can't
2: wait for your lawnmower man episode. They already did it. <laughs>
3: they did yeah.
2: it. Oh, you haven't. I can't wait to listen. To I haven't bel- got
3: to believe one. it or not, that is our most listened to episode ever.
2: Is it really? How did I miss
3: that? Yeah. It was one of the first, like, four we did, I think. But um I yeah, do believe
1: it because, you know, I feel we, we actually have pretty overwhelmingly positive, like, iTunes reviews. Mm-hmm. And the, when we get, like, a one star, it's always, like, really weird. And you can kind of under- <laughs> see that they, because, like, what, one time one of our one stars is that like they hate like that I tell too many jokes. And I'm like, I feel like I barely tell any jokes on this podcast. And then another person was that we like weren't funny enough. And I'm like, well, they clearly wanted this to be and <laughs> yeah. like, how did this yeah. get made?
3: You so can't. I, so I get that.
1: I get the loudmore man. They're like, oh, that movie's so horrible. I'm gonna listen to this episode. And it is a funny episode.
3: It's oh, a gotta, very funny episode. I, um, I totally
2: listened to that one. I don't know how I yeah, uh,
3: Sarah Beatty is our guest on that. In fact, we brought her back just last week for our uh, big Halloween Week episode with uh, Sleepwalkers. Um, we knew we wanted to do something special for that episode, and so we brought back the guest from our most uh, popular episode so for that a special one.
1: movie. Um, but not. yeah,
3: don't be don't be reading your iTunes reviews. I very early on, <laughs> uh, I, I, t- I very very early on, I made the mistake <laughs> of like, oh, we have some reviews. I'm going to look at these, and um, it, I, w- I would like you've just perfectly captured why you can't really listen to them because you'll have. Two different people saying opposite, the, <laughs>
1: the,
3: you know, an opposite thing where you like, you don't know how to take it. And also um, we have been dinged a lot for uh, mentioning generally in a derogatory manner, uh, Donald Trump on our show. <laughs> and um, people do not like, especially like Trump supporters do not like it when the people that are creating the entertainment content that they uh, consume, Um, that they shit talk Trump I think because they know like they like this thing they like these entertainers but they don't want to think that those entertainers might not like them for their political beliefs and so they say shut up stop talking about this you know it's not all about politics it's not all about politics but you know um, if you can't handle like that level of (laughs) you know shit talking (laughs) like luck in the fucking real world buddy (laughs) I would
1: say though that you guys are you know we also just try to keep our podcast apolitical because it doesn't right. have anything to do with the topics but you guys are doing a stephen king podcast and i can think of very few celebrities who are more especially They're of vocal. his age <laughs> right? who are yeah. vocal on twitter about right. their opinions on trump so it's kind of like well you should already hate all of stephen king's material then right. what do you care what these podcasters are <laughs> right. further commenting on it right. Yeah, I mean, um,
4: we 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 do try to keep. I mean, funnily enough, we we don't really bring up politics very often. I think that maybe there's ten minutes worth of Donald Trump discussion yeah. <laughs> in the what forty hours, right. forty plus hours we we've recorded. Uh, you know, it's just when he does pop up, it is. We don't have nice things to say. Um, you know, but there's also sometimes where we're doing like the dead zone episode, and you can't not compare. Uh, you know, That's, the current president yeah. to, you know, the the president in that. And it's like you can't, uh, it, you know, we had Brent Terhune on the show who's, like, made a name for himself for, you know, imitating uh, MAGA supporters on on uh, social media. He's having a banner week this week. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, as we record this, you know, and of course there has to be, you know, some sort of he came on for the mist and you know the mist there's a a whole section in there that's all about like you know a religious fervor around a central mm-hmm. figure so i mean all this stuff is you know it, we don't just bring it up just to piss people off so i, I don't want anybody listening to this to think that we you know right, go out right. to demean your political beliefs it's just uh, you know we we have strong beliefs of our own and if it works its way into the conversation it works its way in Mm-hmm. It's a very conversational show. Sometimes the right. president of the
3: United States is going to take a kick in the nuts. <laughs> Got to be ready for that on the KingCast.
1: Uh, I was also saying, I think, please stop me so I don't embarrass myself. I think I was saying this before we started recording that I it's the kind of podcast where I always want to interject, uh, even if I'm not adding anything to the conversation. I just want like a. We- a- nerdy kid trying to get into the conversation huddle in the hallway in the high school yeah leave our president alone
3: (laughs) the more the more formal version of the king cast I don't think I would be interested in doing Uh, the fact that it's sort of designed to sound like an overheard conversation between three king nerds like in a bar like that's what it should sound like Um, and it should have those Peaks and valleys to it, where some of it's funny, some of it's serious. You know, it's it's how those conversations go. Uh, if it were a more rigid interview show, I don't think I don't think I would have as much fun with it. I don't think we would be interested right. in that.
1: Well, there's something. There is just something inherently interesting about listening to uh, celebrities, for lack of a better word, but you know, people who you would normally have on to interview them about their own films right. or books or TV shows. But hearing their opinions on somebody else's work, yeah, that
3: uh, I've they're never passionate had a conversation about. Conversation yeah.
1: myself, but you know, John Carpenter is notorious for not liking to do interviews. He's warming <laughs> right. up a little bit now that he's experiencing this weird rock star renaissance and his uh he turned
4: us down yeah he turned uh, us right well, but, the fuck down yeah. <laughs> he he's nice about it he, doesn't yeah, he, was like, nice. he was very nice
1: he doesn't like doing it um but uh, you know i've heard that if you just kind of ask him to talk about howard hawk's westerns oh, yeah. or something no, he no, lights
4: the, up no I've, I've interviewed carpenter multiple times over the years and he's that that's true like he he's you that, that's kind of the the secret to being an interviewer period is to find What somebody wants to talk about you know sometimes Mm. you're not given the option sometimes you sit down for five minutes of the junket and you have to talk about the movie but like i'll I'll give you an example and here here i'm gonna drop a giant name i got to interview bruce willis for like 15 minutes for red the first (laughs) red um and and he doesn't he doesn't do a lot of interviews and the interviews he does do are very cantankerous and standoffish and so i was nervous going into it Uh, but like I I think that this was at a comic-con or something and we'd seen footage and Ernest Borgnine prominently in the footage and he had like a great scene and so the first thing I talked about with Bruce Willis was Ernest Borgnine and I found out he was a huge like vintage we talked about Marty we talked about from here to eternity and he was a huge vintage film fan so like that interview is actually good because he starts off talking about you know Frank Sinatra stories he got out of Borgnine and and like all this other stuff and he ended up like liking it right like like liking liking chatting and, and it's you know that weirdly enough our podcast is is kind of taking that same you know tack by having the p- people bring the title to us whether it's the the movie that they loved or have a connection with like we had elijah wood on the show to talk about misery and you know his connection. He's a, a cinephile, so of course he loved the movie. And he never read the book, but he also has a weird perspective of being a very famous face who has his own army of number one fans, you know, and crazy fan encounters that he's had. And you know that became the cornerstone of that episode. Is he had something to relate to that, you know? So I mean, that's to, to us, you know, whether the show works or not, it's up to anybody listening to decide. But what works for us is is definitely that sauce of of a uh, of just connecting and having conversations, passionate conversations, where it's not just somebody trying to plug something that they're doing. I will say,
3: I think we talked about mannequin and short circuit too much in that last episode.
4: <laughs> uh, we did. We did get yelled at in Psycho 2 the The Sarah Beatty episode, somebody yelled at us because uh, for Sleepwalkers, because we they're like, you spent um, forty minutes in into this fucking thing, bro. <laughs> yeah, you're forty minutes in. You've talked more about the gate than you have <laughs> <laughs> you have Sleepwalkers.
1: Well, the gate is a great movie. It so. is a good movie. I agree very Stephen Kingy kind of movie really It is. that easily well, pretty much been, any, uh...
4: you know, almost any original horror movie that you saw in in the 80s owes some sort of debt to King like he, that's mm-hmm. just his voice was so specific and he was so popular you know he, he served as an inspiration then and like especially now like everybody that's making stuff now is grew were winged on, like I interviewed the uh, the duffers for the duffer brothers for like some Emmy push for their new season of stranger things and not for the show. We're hoping to get them on, but I interviewed them for something separately and they, the whole interview was just them talking about growing up with the two Stevens, Spielberg and King. Like everybody Mm. that's working now in genre, especially or you know, those those are the the cornerstones.
2: You could tell by that show too.
4: Yeah, no (laughs) no joke. (laughs) It would have been funny enough. That's another, that's another funny connection is that they, uh, they made Stranger Things because they were trying to do their dream project was it. They wanted to do Mm -hmm. it. And uh, they couldn't; they weren't nearly successful or big enough to even get in the room to pitch when all this stuff was happening. Uh, so this was like Stranger Things is their version of of taking kind of a, a basic premise to it and making their own thing around it. It would have been funny if they told you, like,
3: well, as you can tell, we obviously grew up with the two Stevens—Stephen King and Stephen Sondheim. You'd be like, <laughs> "What the fuck?"
1: <laughs> yeah, that's hey, I'd I watch concept. that play.
3: Yeah, yeah, that's the version of Stranger Things I want to see.
1: <laughs> um well segueing back into it steve you maybe want to bring the audience back up to speed and where we're at
2: yes we are now leaving the david uh K-
4: jesus what is
1: his,
2: how do you say his name again like, his name question. is not
4: david K- <laughs> K- Jesus.
1: david
2: kagenic K- K- kagenic K- K-
1: i believe yeah Although so i could also be wrong so
2: so in 2012, he became attached to the Stand as a writer, and that's around the time Ben Affleck. Ben Affleck, I say every name wrong. Uh, became director. Ben, the ben like Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> ben and he, <laughs> and Jesus. he brought and he brought him onto the Stand because of his unproduced adaptation of it. And then after that, uh, what just Eric was just talking about is the Duffo the Duffo brothers were interested in doing it, but they weren't established yet. And so they did not, they, you know, they weren't near, they didn't do Stranger Things yet. And so Kerry Fukunawa is the next director to become attached, and that is in June 7th, 2012. And he was going to co write, he's co writing the script with Chase Palmer. And I think it was because Chase Palmer wrote uh, an ada- adaptation of Dune. And if you read Chase Palmer's Dune script, again, it's exactly 120 pages. <laughs> and it's, um you know, they're doing it as two movies. And again, you had to do it as one movie. And there's a really wild action chase sequence in that script. That's, I think, what a. That's uh, for another episode. So <laughs> we'll leave it
1: there. It, yeah, recapping for people too, the Kajanic script was the attempt to put it all into one. Yes. The whole thing into one script. Don't split anything up. Uh, we all kind of agreed that that no blame to the script or to him. It really, if nothing else, proved that you can't just fit it all in. You would have to make it wildly unfaithful or it needs to be a miniseries or as they kind of hit upon two film, uh, which I just thought was interesting because even though it's very cool horror idea of these adults having to go back home to deal with something from their childhood, uh, the part of the story that's always worked the best for me in the novel, in the mini series, in the two features they made, is the part with the Loser's Club as kids. Right. So that it's way, the if the movies always. didn't do well, and they never got to do part two, they still would have had this really nice, kind of perfect little movie. Um,
2: right.
1: mm-hmm. I, it is clearly the way to go. Uh, but yeah, so now we have a script dated uh, March 18th, 2014, Chase Palmer. Kerry Fukunaga, who I think,
2: yeah, it's two years after he was announced as the director, and two years after he did announce that it was going to be planned into two films.
1: Wait, this it's... is two years after Fukunaga was announced.
2: Yeah, he was announced. Okay, in so that's interesting
1: because uh, I'll admit I didn't really know his work prior to True Detective. Which premiered in January of 2014. So it almost just felt like instantly he was doing it. <laughs> this makes a lot more right. sense, though. Well, yeah, he, that he also it, was, had those, it was already that, in the works.
2: That first Netflix film that had Oscar buzz, Beast with No Nation. And he did that wild Sin Nobre movie about the, yeah. the, the train. And so I think that was the one that kind of got him a lot of critical attention and stuff.
1: Uh, and so, how Tell many of you did, uh, did you Tell guys me. read this one?
3: Yeah. Yes. Um... For, uh, I remember this one was like, you know, I'm always like chasing down uh, scripts that haven't been scripts of shit that wasn't made, you know, um, or stuff that I'm interested about that's coming out, you know, a year or two from now. And I knew that there was a Fukunaga draft of the it script out there and it took me forever to get my hands on it. And finally I found someone that had it and was willing to share it. And I read it like a long, long time ago, <laughs> and it was around the time that Eric went to the uh, the set visit in um, right. Toronto, right? Or like up there. Yes. And um, I loved the Fukunaga draft so much, and then <laughs> Eric comes back and he's talking about, uh, you know, Beth is like a, a damsel in distress, and you know, this time like Pennywise pops out of a fucking slideshow or something. I was like, what? And, and, you know, and yeah, and Georgie may or may not be dead. And I was like, what the fuck are they doing? Like the, the Fukunaga draft is awesome. Just like, and you know, I was, I had, I had been heartbroken when he left the thing and then I heard all that. And I was very concerned. And then, you know, turned out that I had nothing to be concerned about. They, they nailed it. But I I do think the most interesting thing about, It Chapter One and It Chapter Two is that one is working over the bones of this first Fukunaga draft and the the subsequent ones, obviously. Um, Whereas the second one isn't. And the first one is markedly better than the first. And so the internal question in my mind is like, how much of the first movie's success can be attributed to uh, the work that Carrie Fukunaga and Chase Palmer put into it? That's my little speech on this.
1: (laughs) I mean, they definitely... Cracked the code, again, mm-hmm, building right. off of the previous script. Uh, is this the is this script in question the one that you read, Scott?
3: Yes, I believe so. I believe that we, we have three
1: of them. Yeah, we have um. three scripts. One is undated, so <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, Steve and I couldn't, kind of went back and forth about just sort of trying to sleuth our way through it, which order came in. We weren't really sure, so we're basically just presenting it in the order that I read them. Uh, mm-hmm. So the unra- the undated one is next, uh, but Steve has a good argument for why that maybe was the draft that followed this. And it is very similar for the most part to what we saw in the finished film right. with some key differences. The weirdest one that I found just off the bat is that some of the names are different.
4: The change for no reason. Yeah. Bill is Will. <laughs> My, again entire...
1: i often i feel when i read these i can hear the studio notes and i feel <laughs> like that note is too many of the kids names start with a b you <laughs> can't have bill well, ben and bev uh, I, I think
3: uh, although i you know my read on that specific one is that uh will is a more likely name for a kid in the 80s when the time is set than it would have been in the 50s huh. um I, I, but that I doesn't have... explain why uh henry bowers is now travis
1: Travis Bower and belch huggins is snatch. <laughs> snatch. Huggins. yeah right? Right.
3: they just made went grosser on that one but he's <laughs> but he still burps in people's faces
1: yeah he does not yeah. snatch in their faces uh, and also in this one <laughs> leroy hanlon is mike's dad not because in the finished movie he's his grandfather right
3: yeah remembering well that correctly. i don't know now that you say that i don't know
1: He's definitely not his dad, but I can't hmm. remember if he's his grandfather or uncle or just like family friend, but they establish in that that his parents are dead. Oh, that's um, true. Uh, which again, it's not the same as the book. So I was, I was, that's something that was an interesting, uh, and this one has, little, some of this stuff I feel, they might even have been in the finished film that just things that got edited out, but like this has Mrs. Marsh, Bev's mom, or in the movie it's like, right. j- like she has a single
4: dad. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's, it was kind of a, a whiplash. Cause this is, I'd read this draft around the time that, that uh, Scott read it. Um, and, uh, I revisited it right on the heels of reading the uh, the previous draft. And it is such a world of difference right off the bat. Like the first time, you know, any dialogue with the kids are going on, it suddenly feels real. Like you, you know, these kids, these are mm-hmm. it, like, it, there's a personality and a life to this script that is just missing from the last one where, it, where it's so concerned with just trying to get a thousand plus pages into one, uh, you know, feature film, uh, it doesn't have any room for this character growth, and uh, like you can definitely tell, this is minus a couple of really key sequences. This is obviously the skeleton that the movie that we got is built on. The Pennywise in this is described as an old world, uh, 19th century clown, not a Bozo or Ronald McDonald type, mm-hmm. uh, which obviously became the the you know basing the the foundation for the 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 Muschietti version well,
1: and the proof is really in the numbers just looking at the fact that this script only tells half the story and it's right. longer than the previous script right. you know so uh, and there's
4: a quicker read by the way
1: well yeah. that's often the case you know yeah. it's like you want want everything to be as short as you can but things also just have their own rhythm and sometimes chopping all the life out of something almost makes it longer. Like it's just right. exhausting uh, to get through. It's Did just you know, a
3: well written, I mean separate from the dialogue, it's just a well written screenplay. Right. And it's very dynamic as Eric was just pointing out like that, that opening scene where Georgie's getting killed and it talks about like that fucking bam rack focus shot when it like goes from the old lady's window to, georgie mm-hmm. outside getting yanked into the thing it's such it's so good and the uh yeah Eddie version is very very close to that
1: uh this also has a thing at the beginning and again this isn't in the finished movie i don't think right where but several of these scripts have it where richie calls uh bill in this case will on a walkie-talkie while right. he's making georgie's boat mm-hmm. Um yeah. Uh, I don't know if that's from the novel. I just thought it was interesting that it's pretty much in all these scripts, but I don't think is in the actual movie.
3: No. And there's also a thing in there about uh, Bill and Georgie having sort of a uh, call and answer thing. That's like a secret handshake. Yeah. That's like a sort of a secret handshake. And between the two of them, that pays off like much later in the movie when, Mm -hmm. um, you know, they're fighting Pennywise and then Georgie, Pennywise as Georgie is not able to do the callback or something. And Bill then realizes that it's not really him,
4: which Uh, I know that we're jumping ahead here, but that, that is like an incredibly effective moment where in the final confrontation, a version of this happens in the movie uh, that we got where Bill has to essentially put Georgie, you know, put Georgie down, right? That this, he has to put Georgie's death behind him. That's the whole significance of this. Of this moment but what's really messed up here is that that Pennywise uses it when he's essentially about to die where he turns into Georgie and Georgie pretty much says like listen you know Bill if you kill him you're killing me because I'm part of the clown now like when we're all floating here this is this is me existing here and and Bill has you know Will in the script but you know stuttering Bill for real um you know he has this uh you know pause because you know, there there might be something there that like him killing Pennywise is possibly him killing whatever's left of his brother that exists mm-hmm. here and and it, it it's a really like existentially like fucked up thing to throw you know to th- to throw at I mean the whole finale I'm sure we'll, we'll get to in a second which is you know very existential and interesting and visually dynamic um, but like that scene in particular was was I thought very clever and uh, the callback the, the whole call and answer thing is is how bill figures out that that's just a face that that's not his brother that that is there is no part of his brother that that mm-hmm. exists anymore that that is just pennywise trying to save his, his ass
1: well and it's again i wonder some of this stuff if it was in the finished movie and just had to be cut for time because it's like even though this script is long in the when you're watching the movie a lot of the like atmospheric scary scenes are just inherently going to be longer than they play reading them on the page Mm but one thing that this all these other scripts have that i because stanley is one of those characters where you know there's already so many kids just have them all i feel like the difference between seven and five kids who cares (laughs) if you're going to cut it down to like three i get Mm -hmm. it um but stanley nonetheless i kind of get why you're like well maybe we just cut him because he's kind of like almost the least interesting of the losers. And then he's not even in the second one really. But this one has like kind of adding more for him is that all of these Mm -hmm. other scripts have the thing of him being kind of like, or at least they're joking that he's obsessed with jerking off. Uh, It's like the kind Mm -hmm. of stuff that Richie's making fun of him. But that is where Pennywise gets him. Cause in the finished film, it's very like, and it feels believable as like a kid that there's like that scary painting in the one room Right. walking by but in all this like in this specific one it's like he goes into the bathroom to pee and like a naked woman comes out uh right. and it's almost it's a very shining very shining because woman on front,
3: yeah yeah, and out of the fountain in the uh in the jewish temple it's not um
1: well, i think that's the next she's script peeing she's in,
3: by uh, the way yeah yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. that's yeah. not this one though that's oh, one that's of in the those... next oh one? i, I yeah. thought it was okay. in this one they all blur
2: yeah because i noticed a lot of stephen king like little uh easter eggs it was like the old lady from the shining the stand by me hitting mailboxes the silver right. bullet um uh, firing the bottle rocket into the yep uh, mm-hmm. the werewolves well, we'll get I, to
1: the bottle rockets oh okay. just, just kind of talking like, through anyway, some yeah. of the other uh yeah it's uh. like it, it's it's all those whoever said that earlier uh this is the bones of the movie that got mm-hmm. made like it was in mm-hmm. that sense you can almost just skim through it and in it's interesting little little ways where they zigged and zagged in different ways. But like in this one, in the pharmacy sequence, when Bev helps them out, rather than going and distracting the pharmacist, she has Eddie fake an allergic reaction. Uh, These all have his like EpiPen plays a a big role. Uh, We also get a lot more of Officer Bowers, Henry's dad, who's Mm -hmm. Travis Bowers for some reason here. And they have a whole (laughs) thing where he thinks that Mike uh is responsible for hockstetter and i don't actually this one i think is almost a typo because in all three of these scripts they kind of go back and forth between calling him hockstetter and hockstetler
4: uh, right i know. I feel like
1: that i think that was just a mistake though um but when hockstetter disappears mike was the last one they set, saw him with right. so they go to talk to mike and leroy is like you know what you're doing to my son and they like manhandle him and he ends up having like a heart attack and they go to the hospital and they find out his dad has cancer. And so that's like, that's kind of Mike's whole storyline in this. And this has more is, of the actually, stuff. Oh, I was God, say, was I that's actually
4: word. really interesting. Cause that's his way into, to telling the black spot story. Yeah, and which getting I
1: like, is that his dad is, is really like, cool. he had this experience. He remembers it. And, he, and, and on and his
4: deathbed, he, that, that's his warning to his son right saying that there's not only do you have to worry about you know being you know an outcast and being you know a, a black kid in a in a white world you have to also worry about this town itself mm-hmm. because this is the crazy shit i saw when i was a kid and that that exists and, and i
1: think out- all that's cool.
4: The
2: Huxstetler death. Hox, death was pretty interesting. It was like right out of Alien, like the Tom Skerritt with the blow, with the blowtorch right. with the Alien, and this time it's the kid using um, a hairspray bottle and a uh, lighter, and he like
4: yeah, which they kept in the in the Mushietti movie. Mm-hmm. Is it it's, uh, yeah, it, yeah, it's it's the same thing. It, it it's a little bit different because this one it's in the. The bones of the Kitchener ironworks, like the little sewer underneath. Ah, The, the ironworks, but it's in, in uh in the Muschietti version, which I can kind of see, you know, it makes a little bit more sense to tie it to the Barons, you know, since so much of the story is yeah, well, streamlined okay. it into that. Yeah, yeah it's interesting that to see
1: those little pieces, like where the Nibel house is kind of right located just sort of drifts around in all these scripts.
4: Right. Uh, these
1: also all have more things of the kids going in kind of classic horror movie fashion, trying to tell the police and the police just not right. believing them. Uh Chief Borton is a character in a lot of these <laughs> uh other drafts. Um, they also a- have a
4: patsy they also have a patsy for the for the child murders It's a one-armed man yeah, who we see- wearing a USS <laughs> Indianapolis hat.
1: Yeah who we see yeah. earlier that's where uh, Ben, when he's in the, he's, he sees that guy, he sees that guy take a postcard in the library, and that's where he right. notices the postcards that he writes the poem to Bev on. Right. Um, this has, like a, I think, this would have been a cool scene um, in the hospital when Mike's, right after his dad in his hospital room mm-hmm. is telling him about the black spot, because this has the thing where, you know, Mike uh, doesn't want to kill sheep, you know? Um, right, and he sees a sheep walking down the, the hall of the hospital and follows it's it. Very in
4: Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah.
1: yeah, totally. That's how I was picturing it. Um, and he sees Hoxtedder in the, one of the corpse lockers, uh, ends up pulling like the fire alarm and the cops come and you kids are crazy. And he just like runs off. <laughs> uh, that's where he ends up. And this is what Steve was alluding to. So instead of the rock throwing, the famous mm. rock throwing scene where they get in the rock war with the bullies, right. They get in like a really epic firework fight where they describe Bev has this like six cylinder mortar that she essentially (laughs) blows up their car (laughs) with is like the way it's described. Uh, Yeah. They're they're chasing,
4: they're chasing down Mike, right? Like they're trying to run Mike over on the 4th of July and all the, the losers have fireworks and they're watching the town's fireworks and they're going to set off their own and they see, uh, travis quote-unquote travis bowers trying to run down mike Hamlin and they inter, intervene by ambushing the car with these fireworks and and this version of the the rock fight and rocks do come into the fight a little bit later at the later very end out, but
1: like i even like run out of fireworks copied right. a little bit here is Beverly jumps out, firing off her six-barreled mortar, handheld, aimed horizontally at the car. Thump, the recoil throws her back while the rocketing projectile explodes in front of the Trans Am. Travis and the boys shield their faces, screaming as the front windshield explodes. (laughs) And I'm like, wow, the losers are like an 80s action movie character. <laughs> well, so we'll yeah.
4: Henry Bowers is throwing uh, like super duper powered M80s, M80s yeah. that are like little grenades that all have clown faces on them. so that this part gets a little ridiculous. it gets a little bit, in, uh, we talked about the Duffers, it gets a little bit in the season three of Stranger Things yeah. feel. I'd <laughs> um, would would made... love
3: to have seen Fukunaga shoot that though. oh hell yeah. yeah that same way, here. Would, that I'd would love have to have seen this. beautiful scenes. like I mean yeah. That's, you gotta kind of figure that's why you would write a sequence like this. You know, why why update rocks to fireworks? Well, this would have yeah, been a unless gorgeous, you really had gorgeous it in your thing.
1: Thing. Yeah. Oh, and this, the Nightbolt house is like, I couldn't quite tell if it's on a pier or right next to a pier, right. um, but just visual change there. And this has kind of a cool thing where they're hiding in the Nybolt house. They like pull off some of the boards over the windows and they can see where the boards aren't there anymore. And they can see Travis Bowers walking around looking for them. But then we cut back outside the house and the boards are still on. Right. And so Travis yeah. like can't see. And little, little details like that, uh, I felt they're very keen keeping with just the way the novel was. Uh, this has a whole thing where there's tons of crows inside the house. Mm. Uh, yeah, they fire a rocket into Pennywise's eyes. Mm-hmm. Silver bullet style, I think Steve right. was saying. <laughs>
3: Now, does this draft have the the interlude that goes back to the, what is it, the 1600s? No, this, yeah, the this is the silver dollar. That's what I was just going
1: to bring up. silver right dollar
4: out. saloon. Right. Uh, okay.
1: and, and that is that from the novel? Yes. I can't quite remember. Um, and yeah, that's, for sure. uh, I mean, because it's not in the finished version, it's like, in some ways, I don't know if it pulls you out of it. It is weird to suddenly be, we're 92 pages into the script, and then all of a sudden we cut to the past and there's a Chiron that says 1879 um Mm. and it's this character who you know because there's so much of the book in the movies where you realize that it is like influencing adults too to kind of act extra horrible um and right because this is where the guy goes into that like yeah silver dollar saloon and he pretty gruesome, just ends up like axe murdering all these people. And the creepy part of it is that no one else is reacting appropriately to it. Yeah. Like everyone else is just ordering drinks and continuing to carouse and laugh while he's just methodically going around murdering this one specific group of people. Um, yeah, playing playing, like, is playing yeah.
3: the piano, right?
1: Uh, yes. yes. Yeah.
3: yeah. Like, like he's like murdering his way through the bar like along to the frequency that's that's sort of how I was imagining it of like the more wild uh, Pennywise was getting on the keys like the more frantic the murder spree was getting and then yeah that's all I remember about that
4: well yeah I mean th- this ends up like y- you're right it's a very jarring flashback because we're so used to seeing uh, in the script he describes you know okay now it's July 4th or whatever and, and mm-hmm. you expected this is the next continuation of that and, and it turns out to be like a hundred hundred odd year hundred plus years in the past uh but it really is it's not a flashback uh, so much as it's been telling this the story since he's the one just like in the movie we got that's been uh, kind of researching all the history of dairy and and the whole point is to kind of illustrate how the whole town is cursed um I, I get it's a really cool scene i get why they they axed it no pun intended for the uh you know for mm-hmm. the uh the one that I actually got before cameras uh because i mean you, we already get that in the that's one thing uh, that I think we can all agree that that uh, the Muschietti version does really well is it like every adult that we see in that is off there's something creepy about just the regular adults Mm -hmm. you know they they put he puts you know random people in fat suits when so they don't look exactly like proportionally correct and and you know everybody looks sweaty and gross and you know kind of showing the the rot of dairy um you could do that visually you don't need a, a whole you know $10 $10 million extended you know, flashback <laughs> yeah. sequence to tell it. I, I can give anybody that choice.
1: But speaking of adults, yeah, a lot of these, these unmade versions here, um, the adults in particular, Bill, or in this case, Will's parents, the Denbros mm. factor much more into the movie. Mm. Cause I think in the like, finished film, there's basically just that like scene with his dad where he's trying to show him how he built the whole model of the mm-hmm. uh, sewer system and stuff. And right. then, if i'm remembering correctly his parents are kind of barely in the rest of the story yeah but these all very much have like a whole arc with his parents where he catches his parents arguing and his like mom slaps him and uh, this right. one specifically has a scene where he's like sitting at the sewer where georgie died like screaming for it to come fight him right. uh let's see yeah this also has Bowers gets a gun in this instead of a knife, which is mm-hmm. traditionally what it is. Uh, and then this one too. After he kills his dad, uh, when they're following the the losers down in the sewers, uh, Snatch, aka Belch, uh, <laughs> doesn't want to go, and uh, he just instantly kills him. And Victor Chris right. is like, "Uh, okay, cool." And then, <laughs> um, uh, oh the, God. One of my
4: I was gonna say one of my favorite things in this draft is um there's there's this is right after this he's chasing them uh and their entry into pennywise's lair is through the kitchener ironworks entrance that uh um, that hockstetter died in last time it's not through the the Niebold house um, but uh they do something really fucking creepy in this section and that's like they kind of tumble through a a pipe and there's a little drop and they're like on this membrane over i was just gonna read that over over water or something and there's like thousands of baby well, here's spiders the description. first of all i just underneath. love
1: this leg line interior membranous chamber day right. a thin membrane floats over gelatinous water very delicate almost skin-like underneath thousands of spiders swim nest and writhe he can actually feel their legs push against the underside of the layer yeah, that, yeah. I was like that's disgusting <laughs> that,
4: I, that's like mm-hmm. it's brutal i guess henry henry or travis is too big to get through the the crawl space, so he sends uh victor is victor right victor yeah Chris. he's
1: the only one left at this yeah game. he
4: he sends him in there with the knife going go kill these people i want to hear him scream and he lands in this membrane and he's just like hey guys i'm not going to kill you help me <laughs> you know he's crazy <laughs> I'm, I'm here with you guys but as he does that like his, the knife punctures the membrane and he gets eaten alive by thousands of spiders yeah and uh and it's like that whole sequence is like i would have loved to have seen yeah. that mm-hmm. executed like that that is such a weird, bizarre, almost Lovecraftian, you know, horror element to you know to this uh uh to the story. And,
3: and it gets even more Lovecraftian. It goes, oh, oh go ahead. Yeah. This is your show.
1: Oh no, no but I, mean, I think <laughs> I think maybe talking I wonder if we're about the same thing because this one they get to its cavern as it's called yeah there's with just the starfish. kind of this, I think a starfish is in another one.
4: No okay. it's, in oh, it's, one? It's, it's in this one. Is it
1: in this one? Okay. Yeah. So it's in two different ones then. Um, But also just that there's like this basically infinite, like just this infinite space it's described with all, with seven different waterfalls that are all the different, you know, dairy rivers and sewer sources just kind of Mm -hmm. emptying out. uh, And they're falling up. Yeah. Yeah.
4: And and, and they do a repeat, like how Bev is the first one to jump into the quarry, just like in the movie. Uh, Mm -hmm. They do a repeat of that where she's the first one to essentially jump into this you know waterfall that's falling up and then they all do that they follow suit and like the camera turns upside down and is is they're essentially entering into this you know bizarre realm of, of pennywise more than just a, a creepy layer with a bunch of old toys in it which is kind of what we got <laughs> um which also worked i, th- I think it's, it's actually really effective in in the Mushietti version
1: uh, and in this one stan is the one who looks into the deadlights instead yep. of Bev. well Bev, when she gets like kidnapped in the finished right. movie basically. Um, this also, all, all of these, but this one in particular, I thought it was interesting. They kind of try to work the little kid orgy from the novel in right. without really doing it. Cause this has it where all of the guys kind of get whammied. Um, oh no, wait, that's a different way. Uh, they're all like kind of lost <laughs> trying to get out of the pipe. And it, as it describes, she's like, They start infighting and Beverly says, guys, stop it, focus. Everyone turns to Bev, their muse, their light and then big, bold letters as individual sentences. It says, she takes Eddie's face in her hands. She takes Stan's face in her hands. She takes Richie's face in her hands. She takes Mike's face in her hands. She takes Ben's face in her hands. She takes Will's face in her hands. Uh, And then we like cut to outside and she's basically, you know, like little kids when you're on like a field trip and it's like, everybody hold hands, you know? (laughs) Uh, And she's like leading them all out of the storm pipe. And I'm like, all right, I guess that's the way to have your little kid orgy and not get arrested
4: yeah no that's that is the way more appropriate version of keeping that that idea um because in the the novel that's how like they're in the same spot where they're kind of trapped in a, a a maze the maze beneath uh even after they think that they've won against it that they've defeated it maybe killed it um they are still trapped in there and they that they get out by all bang and bev and that's that's the, that's the how they, they figure out how to center them again but uh, um, you know again yeah i think we mentioned this in the last episode but like king has been on record saying that that whole concept was you know in order to get out they had to essentially uh, you know uh, leave their childhoods behind that that is the symbolic version of you know of what he was going for is is them they're venturing into adulthood and that's how they find their way out and get their bearings and can get out. Um, so the, the, this is definitely the, the much more uh, <laughs> appropriate way to <laughs> yeah. to try to keep that idea. But you know, at the, at the end of the day, you know, I think that all that subtext is there, whether you have that scene where Bev specifically is the anchor to it, you know, I, I don't think you really need it.
1: Yeah um and then so closing out the movie as i was saying like uh the is uh bill's parents have a lot bigger presence in this one up to the point where it ends with we establish at the beginning of the movie that mrs denborough is always playing like for elise is how is the song they pick for this right script. um which is just
4: like in the miniseries
1: yeah uh is that from the novel i don't remember yeah, for sure um yeah. she's playing that at the beginning when we see georgie going to get the you know wax to put on the Paper boat. And uh, Will's walking up to his house at the end. He hears his mom playing because, like, his parents had been so destroyed by Georgie disappearing. And there's also been an ongoing thing that Will wanted to take the same vacation to uh, Acadia, I think it is, um, that they take every year. And his parents don't want to go because Georgie loved it so much. And so the movie ends right. after the losers, you know, cut their. Poems and make their promise to come back if right. it ever returns. It's uh, Will going off on uh, this vacation with his parents again. tra happy ending. Except of course, <laughs> as the camera cranes up, a lone red balloon flies in front of the camera and pops.
4: Right. Great scripts. Uh, a good Did uh, I, I I apologize because i wasn't able to read the next draft that we're about to talk about but in case that this isn't in there there's one thing i want to touch on in this draft that i also yeah, really love is that um uh, I, i'm gonna call him bill because that's his fucking name i'm sorry carrie and <laughs> chase uh what bill gets uh, separated pretty early on in the confrontation with pennywise at the end and there's a sequence where he and Pennywise are just in one dark cavern uh, by themselves. And, you know, this is the kind of the, if you're a fan of the book, this is almost the ritual of Chud, right? This is almost where it's the two wills against each other. And uh, the way he's written, it's described as like being almost pitch black and and Bill only has a flare, Like, um, uh, you just like a red car flare you know roadside emergency flare and that's the only thing lighting this the sequence and you know Pennywise is coming into the light of the flare at some points and out of it and some other points and he's crawling along the walls and you know and all this stuff it is like to me it's in a script that has a lot of really great uh, written set pieces like this to me stands stands out as just it, it's a great great dialogue of you know pennywise taunting bill and you know bill standing up to him and and all that stuff but it's just written so dynamically where you can picture the movie in your mind which is always the cornerstone Mm -hmm. of a a really great script so i definitely want to point that out in case it's not in this uh, next draft
1: yeah well and admittedly you know when you read three scripts that are eerily identical they definitely can blur together um and so this next one is undated it is Yeah, um, we're very positive. Oh, sorry, go ahead.
2: No, do we bring up that Bill doesn't stutter? Also, in that last draft we just talked about, that was like another interesting
4: thing. That's, I think they bring it up that he used to, right? Or, or, or is am I mixing that up with even the previous draft?
1: Yeah, now I can't remember. <laughs> yeah, I <don't> remember. <laughs> All right,
4: no, more, but let's let's go on to the next one. Sorry, yeah. I, I thought uh, no, that but that's was a
1: good point. Thing. Somewhere in here, in one of these scripts, you are correct. <laughs> he does not start. And it's like we aren't sure if this script, this undated one, it's again by Fukunaga. Uh, and Chase Palmer, but we don't know if this comes after the one we just did or before. Steve has a good point, which is that this also has a late in the movie flashback mm-hmm. that's set in the 1600s, which yeah. the script after this one also has. So hmm. but this one also this one gets I, way I, crazier with because like, just okay. really
2: quick. I'm oh, sorry yeah. to cut you off. That scene, I believe is also was shot. And in the Machete movie, the f- chapter one and preview audiences thought it was too disturbing when we get to it, well, and now,
1: so it so... was.
2: Cu- and so it was cut out. And I there's like maybe one image floating online with it. And, oh, but I, I wonder.
1: Ha- I, I don't have the Blu-ray or anything. I wonder. <laughs> if Wait, that's which actually... scene,
2: Which scene got cut? I'm sorry, um, it's like uh, the scene he just talked. It was like in the 1600s where Pennywise eats yeah, like a baby.
3: Is, yeah. See, this is what I was referring to a minute ago. It's like pilgrim times yes. you know it's, it's settlers coming into the area and having their first okay
1: encounter. yeah so to clarify that the saloon one we read from the previous one that was in like 1800s yeah that's a different uh, yeah. thing. this is a, okay this is another
3: yeah. flashback that takes you back to before dairy before there was even a map period in this area of the united states some settlers come into the territory and you've seen already i think like pennywise crash to earth as like a comet and then um, it encounters these settlers and is basically like, "Give me your fucking kids, and I'll leave you alone." And it kills a baby. Uh, and oh, it's
1: super fucked up. It's great. <laughs> and it's basically, great. The, oh, sorry, go on.
3: Well, my only thing to add here is that before, after the first one came out, and before the second one came out, um, I'm trying to think of how to obfuscate this so I don't get anyone in trouble. I was told that. Warner Brothers was already kicking around the idea of a third part that would basically be a prequel and it would sort of take this section of the script and expand it to full length. So it would have been, you know, basically Pilgrims versus It in the very first iteration of Derry when it was just like a a fucking wilderness town or whatever.
2: Interesting. (laughs) Interesting. But it was shot, right? Like the scene was like shot.
3: No, uh, I think it it wasn't. It's not. It's not in the. Um, there's another draft of the script that i read that uh, you guys didn't send along, and it was a shooting draft that Michietti was working with. And it, to my recollection, it's not in that draft. It's something that got removed completely once Fukunaga was out of the picture. That's my mm-hmm. understanding. I don't know if that's yeah, true, but that's how I understand it. Yeah, well.
2: there was something online about like uh, preview audiences saw it and were like heavily disturbed by it, but I can't find any there's just like one little still of uh scarsgard in all red makeup of uh, that's the way he was supposed to look during the scene before
3: he was pennywise but i i can't find I've any not proof heard of that it before yeah and in uh, fact if that was i don't know why that wouldn't have been on the blu-ray release yeah
1: that's what i was kind of wondering if someone knew because there's well, also here, this
3: rumor of like there's going to be some
2: epic version of both movies <laughs> and all the deleted scenes all supposed to come out together at some point. That was like mentioned like a year ago, but I haven't.
1: Well, this any. whole draft, this undated one, which is why I'm wondering if it was actually before the one we just read in a lot of ways, like backtracks. It's significantly changed from the finished movie. Like in this, we again lose Stanley. And in, in, in fact, the name Stanley is used because Will, it's again, Will denbro has a goldfish named Stanley. <laughs> um, <laughs> and Richie Trashmouth, is—is is, now his last name is Goldfarb. And he's the Jewish one whose bar mitzvah <laughs> plays heavily into things. And the Hanlins, that's Mike and his dad, Leroy, don't own the abattoir where they slaughter sheep. They own a burger joint. And after the scene where the, everyone, you know, last day of school, all our kids and the bullies all converge on the Hanlon's burger joint. Um, and I think in this one, it's- uh, That sounds
3: kind of familiar.
1: Oh, the Bowers, because in, in the novel and the you know finished movie, Henry's dad is a cop or a sheriff mm. or whatever. And it's in this, the Bowers own the abattoir, not the Hanlon's. Mm. Um, so, it, it, again, it's actually very, it's still very similar, but it has way more uh, subtle differences. Mrs. Kasprick, Eddie's, you know, mom was making the germaphobe. We see her a lot in a bingo hall rather than at home. Um, and in this, Bob Gray, which is, and I don't remember if they ever used that name in the finished movie, um, but for people who don't know, that's like, it doesn't quite, one of those things, you know, in classic King where he's got all these ideas moving around. They don't necessarily 100% add up into something. It's more just sort of the, the vibe he's creating, but Bob Gray is quote unquote, the human version of Pennywise, whatever that means. And he appears a lot in this movie. Like it would have been the actor. Um, I'm forgetting the name of the actor that Fukunaga wanted,
3: uh, Will to, um,
4: um, Will the Poulter were the Will, Millers? Yeah, yeah Will and,
2: and before him, it was like Ben Mendelsohn, actually. But Ben Mendelssohn, yeah. Mendelsohn, excuse me, I like to destroy names, but he was attached to uh, Rogue One.
1: And in this one, we see a lot of scenes of him as Bob Gray, like leading up to seeing him in clown makeup. And this, there's a whole thing where the scene where uh, Ben is getting attacked by the bullies. Uh, and rather than like falling into the woods and running away, here he's actually saved by Bob Gray, who's like posing as a fly fisherman and tells the bullies to leave before then, you know, creeping all over Ben. (laughs) Uh, Just a lot of like little differences. Like in this, um, Hoxtedder disappears because they're at the quarry and Bowers pushes him off the edge into the water below. And the other guys are like, oh man, Hoxtedder can't swim so bowers is like god damn it and like jumps in to save him and then can't find him under the water and while he's underwater bowers encounters the deadlights, and that's kind of where he gets whammied by pennywise Mm. um yeah just yeah. yeah, it it, it
4: seems like uh, in the quarry scene uh they intended like pretty because in the previous draft uh pennywise is seen under the water too like the uh uh, the kids don't see him, but we, the audience, sees that Pennywise is there. And in the finished movie, the only thing that's there it, that uh, is mentioned is a turtle that, mm-hmm. like, they feel oh, a, a right. something <laughs> underneath, and it's the turtle, which is something for fans of the book that's actually really neat. That because this is a moment where they're this is pretty much where all of, of, uh, uh, the losers club maybe minus mike i don't remember i don't think mike's in there yet but pretty much this is the bonding moment right this is where they almost start gelling as as a whole and to have that be pennywise free and the turtle is the source of light if pennywise is the source of dark the turtle is the the source of light and the the thing that's bringing them all together in in the weird you know cosmic uh, stephen king you know brain worms that he has <laughs> in his, mm-hmm. his stuff so I, I like that the ultimate decision was made to keep pennywise out of the quarry scene and um uh and instead yeah. bring the source of light for this the sequence
1: oh speaking of aquatic creatures i forgot to mention that um will's goldfish named stanley dies immediately in the hanlon burger joint when bowers takes it and throws it on the griddle um, grows <laughs> up his gold. Bill
4: travels with with the goldfish. Yeah, thing? he's
1: just got it in a plastic bag. Is it, is it like what it about Bob? Really he's kind of got really it around.
4: Practical, his...
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> they don't really go into it. kind of they introduce it, and then he immediately gets killed in like the next scene. There's also a scene in this where Bowers and the rest of the bullies are trying to hook up with girls, uh, and you know, like the the scene with the jerk frat guy from Animal House. Bowers can't get mm. it up. Uh, and the girl humiliates him and that's actually what fuels him then to go try and like get the losers He's so embarrassed (laughs) over his impotency and then looping back to what we were talking about though because it's actually it's almost a seven page long sequence is the 1625 flashback that begins with the pilgrims walking with a french translator and some native americans uh finding the spot where Derry is, you know, and it's like the beginning of any kind of horror movie where it's like the Native Americans are like, yeah, yeah, you don't want to go down there. And the Pilgrims (laughs) are like, well, we're white, so we know better and we're going to go do it. And then there's just like a montage of the Pilgrims all being like horribly murdered by Pennywise leading up to the scene that we were talking about where it's like a mother huddled in her home and Pennywise has her baby and makes like a deal with her basically being like, Hey look here's what we can do uh, I cannot kill the baby um, and then I'll kill all of you and your husband when he gets back and everyone in your village or you just sit there and let me eat your baby and then I'll go away eventually and then it shows <laughs> like the mom like basically like okay and like sitting in front of the fire and the fire kind of turns into the deadlights and you realize in you know true lovecraftian fashion she's like losing her mind um mm-hmm. And then this also the the scene where um, Butch Bowers Henry or A.K. here Travis very confusing mm-hmm. um, humiliates him in front of his friends. Now is back at the abattoir if you remember they have the abattoir and he wants Travis to kill a pig in front of the friends and Travis like can't do it and throws up and that you know leads mm-hmm. to him killing his dad. Um, oh, this also has a whole sequence where Mr. Marsh Bev's dad is a janitor at. Um, like the mental institute and he sees Pennywise again in the Bob gray form without the makeup on. And it's, a, I don't even quite know how to read the scene. It sort of alludes to that they did like met a long time ago in the past and made some kind of like weird deal with each other And Pennywise has a line referring to Bev that she's like, she has heard us Elvin. That's Mr. Marsh's name for the first time in eternity, her and those bad boys, they almost stopped the circus. I like that line. <laughs> uh, all these scripts also make, and I feel like this is another thing where they might have even have shot it uh, in the finished film and they just end up kind of cutting it down because in the finished film, um, Eddie's, not Eddie, uh, Stan's bar mitzvah just factors into that montage where it's like they'll yell at each other and then we kind of see what they're doing. Uh, and I think Richie is the only one at the bar mitzvah. Here, if you'll recall, Richie is the Jewish one, so he's getting bar mitzvahed. <laughs> And this factor is very big into the story where all the kids kind of need to, you know, Eddie needs to get away from his mom and everything. And they all meet up at the bar mitzvah. And there's we see the after party, which is at the bingo hall, classic bar mitzvah. (laughs) They have like a dance afterwards. Um, And and that's where everyone forms their plan. Like (laughs) a (laughs) DJ. Yeah. It's just, yeah. Again, it's all very similar, but like still fairly different. In this one, Bowers kills Mr. Marsh. Hmm. Um, You know, not in any kind of major plot way, it's just Mr. Marsh and the Bowers are chasing the kids into the sewers. And uh, Bowers is crazy, so he just kills Mr. Marsh. Um, They find the original well that we saw the Pilgrims dig in the flashback, is like kind of the central location they get to. Here they have something they describe as a planetarium tunnel, which is just a room they're in where it looks like you're in outer space. Uh, Oh, and here the version of this, oh, this actually has kind of a cool sequence where Will finds himself um, back in his own house, which starts kind of like shifting and changing. It's described as being Escher-esque, as in, you know, MC Escher, I assume, like the end of Labyrinth where, you know, they're in the weird upside down uh, gravity defying room and the kids end up, oh no, sorry, Bev ends up saving him after this is again, they have the version of the orgy. This is the one that I was thinking was the last time where they all end up holding hands, but this is where they all get whammied. And I felt a very kind of Tom Cruise moment. You know, Tom Cruise always loves inspiring one of the other characters in his movies by just like grabbing them and essentially being like, you need to feed off my energy. Uh, But she like grabs all of them and makes them look in her eyes to get unwhammied. And this, uh, the kind of true form of it is orange gas. And they Mm -hmm. kind of at times see him as just orange gas. And then when they start hurting Pennywise, he's like rupturing orange gas everywhere. Um, And they kind of emerge at the place where uh, the Witcham and Jackson intersection, which is where, you know, Georgie got pulled into the sewer. Again, all these little ideas where I kind of get why they were thinking that might be cool, even though they ultimately didn't go for it. And then at the end, after they win, um bowers and all of the dead kids corpses wash out at the same time <laughs> so like the basically police find him with all these murdered kids right uh and he goes to jail um <laughs> oh they, i think in the this, finished
4: film they they do this uh, something similar right where they they pin pin the murder not just the murder of his father but on some of the the kids on him too
1: yeah totally um Oh, and this actually has, they they have Mr. Marsh's funeral. This also has the weird ending where Will is walking home. Here's his mom playing piano. Like, yay, mm-hmm. things have been fixed. But then that's immediately followed by a scene of his parents telling, psych, uh, they're getting divorced though. They are better now, but they realize <laughs> they want to split up. And Will goes on the Acadia vacation with just his dad. Or like, that's a weird, <laughs> bummer way to do this ending. Right. Uh, it- it
4: definitely sounds like that they they were on the right path of the previous draft and this one was them trying out a whole bunch of ideas that doesn't sound
1: yeah and like, nearly yeah, as cohesive and this also ends with like as they're driving away bev jumps in front of the car and has like a whole conversation then through the window with will that makes sense that you think of leading to part two where they're talking about that they're going to be going into high school now and that kind of the end of a breakfast club sort of ending you know we're like are we yeah. still going to be friends once school yeah. starts again and she's basically like uh, we can't ever forget each other which then you know makes sense with part two <laughs> where they've all kind of forgotten their childhood right. uh, but yeah so that's that's that undated draft
2: yeah let's see and then,
1: and then really then... the next one we have it is a gary doberman revision so this is beginning right. the ending yeah. uh Face so I think it's so I,
2: at this point, let's see that the the direct uh, Yeah, so this the draft you're talking about now is from 311 and let me go back a second because Fukinawa now Left the project in May 25th 2015 and originally they were supposed to go into production in June 2015 with Fukinawa, but didn't work out and um And like we mentioned, Will Poulter was supposed to be Pennywise Mm -hmm. and Stephen King said, I saw a screen test with the guy. They were going to cast as new Pennywise and he was fucking fantastic. Even without makeup, he was going to absolutely (laughs) kill it. We were very close to going into production and I think it would have been terrific. Kerry Fukunawa is a very talented man, but for whatever reason, it didn't work out. I think it came down to a paranoid decision at the studio level. We want to make a horror movie that will pay off in a cu- that will play off in a couple of weeks, but this guy wants to make a serious film. Mm-hmm. That's what Stephen King said. And then Hugo Weaving was up for Pennywise after that, but he wasn't creepy. I mean, he was creepy, but he wasn't playful enough for the role.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And then Fuki yeah, Nara, I definitely
1: wouldn't describe Hugo Weaving as playful, but yeah, <laughs> he is creepy.
2: So, so he was a- up after. Mendelssohn and uh Will Polta, and then wasn't event-
4: there talk for like a, a minute of like Tilda Swinton people wanted Tilda Swinton to, to play well, Pennywise I think there so, was that yeah, all yeah, online that was online? that was internet shit yeah, yeah I, I haven't <laughs>
3: found anything officially
2: announced about that
4: well I, yeah I know she was never signed but I I, I could have sworn that I'd heard that she'd at least met for the the role probably did um but there was also something in around this time and maybe it was just people extrapolating from like uh uh, the carrie fukunaga announcement and but i'd also heard that somebody was trying to make a an it movie that was fully from bev's perspective uh Hmm. just around this time does does that strike any or ring any bells for any of you guys no no i believe
1: it though just like some of the things uh and we weren't able to put it in our the stand article we did for Fangoria Unmade stand uh, because they were mm-hmm. off the record. But some of the crazy avenues they went down when they were trying to do the stand feature, um, mm-hmm. you know, it, to hint at it's this was during the you know height of the Marvel movie era and are oh, there ways to, to turn the stand into a Avengers style franchise uh, or, all these individual things building up to a bigger thing i mean you know could have been interesting it feels like the exact sort of thing they'd right. never really do but <laughs>
2: oh and that f- for eric i'm not sure if you knew if you heard anything about this while you were on your set visit but i mm-hmm. think like in 2014 the it moved from warner brothers to new line and that could have been also a situation why Fukunawa left um i mean he <laughs> But I don't, did you hear anything about that? Like on set, was there any issues with that situation? You know? No,
4: I mean the the only thing is is I remember Andy and Barbara Muschietti were very open about how if they had their druthers, they would have loved to have made one and two back to back back then but they were saying that like listen i think even at what the, the budget of the movie is what like 60 55 60 or something that for an r-rated yeah. movie that was a huge ask and um so when i went to set they were like we're not sure that we're going to get a second movie so we wanted to make sure that we we told everything you know that this could be a standalone if it needed to be um you know we we're telling the interesting thing they were saying even then that they just weren't sure they were getting a sequel you know, and so that's kind of where they were when they were filming. Is it's easy to look at it now because it's a billion dollar, it became a billion yeah. dollar movie and kind of you know revitalized horror in a weird way, especially kind of a big Looks, budget, yeah. Horror. And and it, um, Blumhouse set back then it wasn't precedent. like, they, yeah, yeah, right, you're right. Blumhouse was kind of the you can only success. spend five
1: million dollars on a horror really movie, you seem to be where everyone's brains were at yeah
4: so it's you know it's, it's easy to kind of look at it now and um it, you know just know how successful it is but like even when they were making it they like it wasn't guaranteed that they were going to con- continue the story and i think that in many ways it would have been better if they were able to convince warner brothers to do uh you know to do it lord of the rings style and shoot them back to back because then you don't get that weird you know lola de-aging you know kid stuff that then that, that they <laughs> had to do in, in the sequel because you know two years or a year and a half difference when your leads are 13 14 years old yeah. is you know they, they're different people by the time you come back you know so it, that's not an answer to your question <laughs> unfortunately <laughs> but just kind of showing like where where their heads were at when when i talked to them on the set Right on.
2: And then yeah, so like, and then in September 2015, Fukunawa came out with one last thing. He was saying, "I was trying to make an unconventional horror film. It didn't fit into the algorithm of what they knew they could spend and make money back and
4: mm.
2: back on, and not offending their standard genre audience." Our, I, I heard budget, a
4: re- I'm oh, sorry, sorry.
3: Go. I, no, no, go. I've, I've heard a really good story about this that I can't tell on the air because I don't know if it's true. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but. It to summarize like the, the contents of the story, it's it, it came down to wh- it, what what Fukunaga is saying right there and what King was saying in that quote that you read a few minutes back about him wanting to make a serious movie versus something that was a little more on the say nightmare on Elm Street side.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And there was content in uh his uh, the current draft of the script that they wanted that Warner Brothers wanted removed and that he wasn't gonna budge on and they kind of called his bluff and he was like okay then i'm done then he fucking walked after like two years of working on this
4: thing if it's the content i think you're hinting about uh, it's probably a good thing i don't know if i would have stuck to the guns that that he's talking to was was a a pretty graphic thing i've I've heard this from multiple people too, so it's a story that's floating around out there if you uh if you can, I don't know, know the right people.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I, I heard what
4: you're talking about too. I didn't want to
2: bring it up because I had no proof and I couldn't find <laughs> it. Right. And it yeah, so it's sort I, of a legendary
4: I, I, story.
3: Yeah, you know? so I didn't
2: want to go there without I, I tried really hard, but I couldn't. But track I agree. It.
3: I, I think it probably did come down to something like that. That he wanted yeah. to go he wanted something a little a little sharper with uh more of a bite in there, and they mm. weren't having it, <laughs> and they that was that was the end of it, you know? And so they i mean if you read these drafts and then look at the final product you can see where things were changed and modified and softened a little bit it's still a brutal movie but um mm-hmm. i do think fukunaga's version of it would have been a little a little more sinister and um dealt with some more adult themes
2: yeah and we don't know how much it would have even shaped before i even got to the screen after these drafts too you know and mm-hmm. so it would have been yeah still
4: i I, I feel like i feel like doberman kind of streamlined a few of the ideas that that fukunaga put in there um i know gary a little bit but i've never really talked to him about any of this stuff um but he uh uh, it it just feels like you know if you look at the finished product you know the the knee bolt house scene in fukunaga's is a little bit darker and a little bit like weirdly more convoluted where where the version that from the Doberman script um, is a little bit more of a horror house, a ho- horror fun house, the whole yeah, yeah you know, scary, not doors, scary, total, yeah, yeah, like all that stuff, and and I don't know, to me that more fits into the tone of King's King's novel, like like that mm-hmm. I, that could have easily been been something pulled right out of the the book. Um, so you know, I, I I haven't read like I didn't read this this uh, Doberman draft. Yeah, I mean, so you, maybe you'll correct. His say, but it feels I, like he's he's like finding that middle ground between what yeah. the studio wanted and what what the original kind of darker, serious R-rated adaptation that Fukunaga well, kind And This of built draft
1: up. is from March eleventh, two thousand sixteen,
4: and I mean it, it's. Well, I I'm think sorry, once
1: Doberman's uh, Oh, were you going to say, Steve?
2: Well, just to cue in the audience, just he wrote Annabelle, Annabelle creation, and the Nun, just to let the audience know.
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, And once he enters the picture, like, then you really full on all the character names, except this one still has Travis Bowers, which got changed to Henry, (laughs) but there's no more Will, it's Bill, Stan's back in the picture. Like, Mm. really the only noticeable differences that are all very minor is, like, in this, the painting that Stan sees is more specifically Jewish. i i don't know hmm. that much about the old testament but it's a character i googled it slightly a character named <laughs> judith um who in most of the paintings of her is holding a sword and like a severed head and in the picture in this story she's like naked so it's again it's this idea i was saying that kind of runs through hmm. a lot of these is that stan has like a jerking off thing and the idea well, that he, i mean he's aroused by this picture in the synagogue is giving him kind of right. like a complex and then they actually have a whole thing together in the climax
4: well the the whole bar mitzvah you know side of it again this whole story is all about transitioning into adulthood it's all about leaving adulthood or childhood behind and transitioning into adulthood and what the hell is a bar mitzvah if not exactly that so i think that's why that's been such a, a cornerstone to almost all these drafts is is having that um uh, in the the first Fukunaga draft that we talked about, like that is literally they go from from like right from the bar mitzvah into the into the confrontation with Pennywise, you know. So that you know that all that again is just symbolizing the you know the, the whole point of the story. The subtext of the story is transition. <laughs> and the whole China. thing with the jerking off too, I would say that that's like
3: less you know. Not that you're saying it's like sort of a a cheap gag or something. Like this kid just can't stop pounding his dick I think it's you know speaking to an element that you know obviously was a major part of the king novel and and uh that's just like the the budding sexuality yeah, totally of, you know, kids right. at that age and
1: i mean i uh, I prefer i kind of wish so I was saying earlier that I felt like Stan is a character who sort of gets the short straw, I think because they knew he was gonna die, I guess, so mm. it's like. Um, he's got his bar mitzvah, but even that gets like scaled back a lot from what we see in these other drafts. I liked having the thing where he's the one who's kind of got the weird uh, self-loathing feelings around his uh, sexuality. Yeah, exactly. And so I like the idea that it's not just, oh, it's this creepy lady holding a flute. Like I thought (laughs) this was actually a little bit more potent um, that it ties into something more personal about him And then honestly, the only other things that are different about this script is this still has the stuff with the Denbros wanting to go to Acadia and then happily going at the end. Chief Borton Mm. is still kind of a character and they go and try to tell him. And then this still has the old timey flashback. Now they've changed the date to 1637. It's almost exactly what I described before except they truncated it. So it's really just the scene Mm. with the mom having to give up her baby willingly. Uh, as kind of sacrifice to it, Uh, which is cool to think about. Again, like Steve was talking about at the beginning, you know, not quite understanding what its backstory is. And I can see how... Again, if you've read the book, I feel the same kind of thing about the Harry Potter movies. If you just watch those movies or Game of Thrones even, the mm-hmm. difference of just watching it on face value versus if you read the novel and are like, oh, that character who they don't tell us an <laughs> infirmity about, I know their whole backstory and their family history right. and all these things we don't see on screen. Um, it's hard for me to completely separate the movie and the book as far as what it's like to just watch the movie and not understand how Lovecraftian King, you know, that what he was drawing from to kind of make Derry his own Arkham, you know, uh, the turtle and it are basically mm-hmm. old ones who crashed mm-hmm. to earth before humanity and they're, they're elder gods, basically. Yeah. Um,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, yeah, but that's really this draft. It again ends with the Dembros going on their vacation happily, trello. Mm-hmm.
2: The interesting mm-hmm. thing about this one too, is that this one has when Travis chases Ben to the bridge. Um, this has in the movie when the old couple drive by, there's a balloon in the back seat. The previous mm-hmm. draft has when Ben escapes Bauer, he comes across pennywise the fly, uh, fishing. fly fishing, yeah and then the version before, version before that Ben uh, the car that drives by has Pennywise in the back seat, waving
4: right waving out at him. You can so.
1: definitely see how it's almost like they've got these note cards with things from the novel that <laughs> yeah. they're like "Let's We
4: need appearance. Yeah, let's let's every, slot one yeah. in and every see every how five it cards.
1: works. Oh, that's not quite working or
4: Yeah.
2: Yeah, but I think that undated draft is before, is is the way we did it. Um, that's just my theory because of, you know, the the flashback. Hmm. continues on with this well, draft there's, and the previous. There's got to be
3: at least one other draft of this out there because There it, is, yeah yeah and the version i like the i'm i'm confused just within this conversation but the one (laughs) the one the one that we talked about the initial 1600 flashback in Mm -hmm. you know there were maybe like i I didn't reread that for this but um or read that um but as you were listing off the differences there was a ton of shit in there that i know i've never read before um but the the one that
1: you read did that have because one one just minor detail I noted none of these drafts had the detail that Ben gets busted listening to New Kids on the Block.
3: <laughs> no, that's um. Although that might have been in the uh, shooting draft that I read, and I wish that I still had copies of those. That's like three computers ago and two email <laughs> two email accounts ago. I have no fuck. You know, I would. Have no and way.
4: you you got that before release because I have yeah. always found it's really difficult to find real shooting drafts because almost any shooting drafts that you find are no 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 are the people shooting that have draft, like transcribed the shooting essentially got, the
3: movie. Yeah. The shooting draft I got from someone that everyone in here knows who's mm-hmm. reliable and it was after Stephen King. It was after the <laughs> it was after the um after the movie came out. The Fukunaga okay. one I read long before.
2: I was trying to find that other draft really 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 hard for this because I from from the rumors I heard of what's in it I was like I I got to see this like the turtle when I read the book and I just couldn't find it and I was really bummed and I tried.
3: it seems to me like the you know what I've learned in having this conversation with y'all and looking over all these drafts it's it's evident that there's far more like i had no i had no idea there were this many drafts my understanding was there was (laughs) the fukunaga the fukunaga draft that had been updated a few times as they were going along but that was the draft and then there was this shooting draft you know none of the four scripts that you sent us are either of those exactly but the (laughs) the
1: yeah, it, and, it just uh, makes you another, wonder how another, many there uh, truly are.
3: Yeah, uh, Another thing worth noting is that the Fukunaga draft that I had, it was just Fukunaga and Chase Palmer. I remember that about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it did have that 1622 interlude in it. And it also, if memory serves, had that moment at the end that you talked about where Beb uh, interacts with Bill as he's driving away to go to Acadia. I do remember that scene. So it sounds to me like what I read was somewhere in between the the first two Fukunaga drafts that we talked about I wish I still had a copy of it
1: hmm. uh, I do want to ask on one of your KingCast episodes you mention a dark universe creature from the Black Lagoon script you read do you still have that
3: no no, no ah! I don't think so but I might ah. be able to I might be able to track that down I love uh,
1: I, 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 I got, got, got all those scripts
3: I got the really want to read
1: that one Max got-
3: Landis creature from the Black Lagoon uh oh about a month ago, and I got like two pages in, and was like, "No, no, 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 not doing this. I'm not. <laughs> it's
4: too good. It's too good." <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, that
2: cat we talked about, who wrote the previous draft, who I can't say his name, Dave Kill Kajak Kajana... Kajana...
3: Kajana...
2: Yeah, he got then he got a creature from the Black Lagoon, like right after like the Stand or around that month, too. <laughs> I'm pretty so. sure
4: every writer in Hollywood has, has <laughs> been on Creature from the Black Lagoon at some point. I remember like, love to see a dark Ross universe. Yeah. Yes, I have that. I
0: think I have that draft
4: too. Which is interesting because didn't his father direct the original or produced it? He oh, has some con- connection to the original. Yeah. And Apparently I know that, that's not enough. That,
2: <laughs> no. Nope. The, the one that kills me is that uh, reading in Fangoria years back was Carpenter was up for Creature from the Black Lagoon and the Peter Benchley's The Beast, and like either huh. way, I was so excited, but then <laughs> he went and did Memoirs of the Invisible Man. I'm a huge Aquatic Horror fan, as you could tell from my office, but man, oh, I would have killed for either one of those Carpenter movies. Yeah, yeah. Another, well, another guys, episode. Well, uh,
1: thank you so much for coming <laughs> on and dedicating this volume of time to discuss Yes, it. thank you guys very, very much. that didn't get made.
4: This is certainly an it-sized podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yes.
1: Although uh, I was saying before, um, this is shorter than we spent talking about super mario brothers so i don't know if that's fair
4: uh, you crazy bastards
1: um
2: it was, uh, but yeah it was awesome having you guys on yeah, thank everyone you so should much oh, thank you for the, having
1: the us. king cast very fun podcast and like me you'll be annoyed Ooh. that you can't join in and share your opinions on things and again uh can you guys give us where they can find you on the social medias
3: I am at uh, at Scott Wampler BMD and the show is at Kingcast nineteen. And if uh you'd like to look into our Patreon, that's patreon.com backslash the Kingcast.
4: Yeah, we give you lots of good stuff. It's not just uh give us money and and uh you know get a, a post every three weeks. We we make sure that you guys get really good stuff every week. Yes.
1: Uh, And you can find us on Instagram and on Twitter at NeverMadeFilm. I also recommend you get the Electric Now app, which is a free app that allows you to watch various movies and TV shows for free. And more importantly, video of our podcast and our sister podcasts on the Electric Surge network, like Trek Spurts and the 430 movie, The Rebel and the Rogue, all sorts of good stuff. If you want to look at our hideous, hideous faces. Um, (laughs) And I'd like to thank everyone at the Electric Surge Network, including Bill Ritter and our producers, Mark A. Altman and Dean Devlin. Until next time, I am Josh Miller. I'm Stephen Scarlatta. And we will not see you at the movies.